Hello, we are the makers of history. With me, Foz and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello. How are we all doing then? What's going nice? Talk to me. Yeah, I'm good, man. Uh, fucking unbearable, unbelievable heat in the Czech Republic, but otherwise oh, good. Mate, tell me about it. <laughs> it's been, uh, I was saying to you earlier, man, like the humidity levels here are like un, un, what's the word? unreasonable. It's unreasonable. Right. It's got that bad. You can't reason like, with the weather. Can't reason with this weather at the moment. Like everyone knows that. Oh, England, it's really rainy, but that's horrible in the summer because we basically turn into a tropical country because it still rains loads, but it's like high humidity with 23 degree heat. Like you don't sound that hot, but when you've got that much humidity, it's like proper unbearable. Like you just yeah. walk around and you're ringing wet because the humidity is all landing on you. It's like, you know, you meet like people from like countries like Spain and Italy and you say about the heat and they're like, Oh yeah, obviously it's so much hotter here. It's like, yeah, but like in England nothing is designed for the heat. So yeah, everything like we don't have aircon, we don't have anything like that. And to be honest, most people I was working with a South African guy, uh, last week, because obviously it's been hot for weeks here like this. And we was talking to him about it and was saying, like, Oh, the weather's been nice and that and I says, Oh, I bet you're fine with it, like he's South African and he was like, No mate this humidity is terrible like he was, he was saying like oh, it's far easier at home to deal with the heat uh, but yeah it's the humidity that gets you man how's your week been anyway what's been going on yeah no it's been kind of hectic a bit so I mean we're like a, we're an episode behind schedule yeah, who spots that Ross yeah I was gonna I was gonna accept the blame of been in <laughs> Romania the last two weeks with work I interesting place a, yeah that's a that's a valid argument to be fair isn't it yeah cool place do not recommend driving there not a good idea oh I remember when we was in Italy <laughs> mate that was the worst driving experience in my life <laughs> like I've been driving for how many years now I've been driving for, well since I was 18 yeah like 33 now and I drive for a living as well I drive a lot because I drive all around the country doing various engineering related things so I would class myself. I'm not being big headed. I'm a good driver. I've never, I've never been an accident I've caused. I've been, I've been, you know, people going the back of me and stuff. But I'm a good driver. I drive quick, but I drive carefully. You nodded. I saw you nod, but you don't. I don't believe that you agreed <laughs> with me. Then, to be completely honest, you were like, yeah, sure you do, fast. Yeah, sure you careful. Uh, you know, but driving in Italy, in well, Naples, that was yeah. difficult. That is so yeah. different. That was di- that was so difficult. That's the difficultest driving I've ever done. Because we're so polite in the UK on the roads. I think we forget how polite everyone you is. You have to be aggressive in the. But I mean, like that's an understatement, mate. <laughs> but it's like it, Romanian driving is not like Italy. Like in Italy, they just like you know drive into each other for fun. Like in Romania, it's not like that. <laughs> but it's just there's just way too many cars on the streets. Even like the tiniest little residential street has a traffic jam in it at 10 a.m. It's like. What is going on here? Oh, okay. Bad layout sort of situation, do you think, then? The way that my, like, colleagues were explaining it is like, okay, Bucharest officially has a population of, like, I don't know, like, 1.8 million, but there's, like, another million people that live there but don't register that they live there, so there's oh, okay. a million more cars on the road than there should be. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, that feels like a very bridge make... problem. Having too many cars on the road, because that's the thing we have here, isn't it? There's mm. just far too many cars on our roads. Oh, yeah, that's because, you know, UK is a third world country that doesn't have any sort of function in public transport. Well, there is that, yeah. It's getting better. <laughs> no, but it is getting better, to be fair. The public transport is getting better. 
the trains are getting better. It's just too expensive. I think that's the big problem in the UK, obviously, because our, all our rail's privately owned and it's state-owned. Like the price of tickets are phenomenal. You want to see how much like yeah, a month pass on the on, for the train costs? It's extortionate. It's into like the five hundred pounds mark. Yes, just for Birmingham. Like... This isn't even London. This is only the second city. So it's yeah, it's pretty pretty bad to be honest. The, the cost of it. This blows my mind because I go like each time I go to work, I go hundred kilometers and I pay equivalent to three quid each way to do that. That net, you'd be paying like probably like fourteen quid for that journey in in the UK. It's good to go to like I don't know, like to Oxford or something. I think you pay more than fourteen for that. Oh yeah, yeah. No, sorry, I was on about in my head. I was thinking just going like going up to Stoke. No, oh, obviously yeah, most yeah. of the way most of the way is on the same line as well. The problem we have is obviously you have different lines for different counties as well. So if you cross the county lines, you end up paying way more for the travel as well if it's like a different rail network Uh, so like cross country rail own like the stretch of rail sort of thing and like if you stay on their rails it's less money but when you cross over onto somebody else's rails that's when the the price really goes up it's also kind of amazing like every other country has like a state railway company except the UK what were you (laughs) sir yeah Thatcher god bless her soul (laughs) put Swift end to that, didn't she? That's another <laughs> conversation now. Some people love her, some people are. Her. I don't think that was Thatcher. I think that was in the 90s. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. I think it was afterwards. Um. Anyway. Yeah, this isn't really... This is history. This is just it British is history. history yeah. 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 I think that's definitely a thing we can do sometime. Like, yeah, I think that'd about, be a good like, one. Yeah, British yeah. history. What are you drinking then, Captain? What you got on the go? So, today I have a... Ovechka, which apparently is from the Biranek brewery. So Biranek means uh, ram, and Ovechka is like sheep. Thought Kozel like, means sheep. ram? No, Kozel means goat. Oh, okay. Kozel is it. If you ever find yourself in the Czech Republic, listeners, definitely drink some Kozel because it's <laughs> amazing. But yeah, this is one of these ones from like a smaller brewery and you find like a plastic bottle. Oh, yeah. Hang on. Put it up to the camera so I can see. I know you guys can't. Who's listening can't see this, but oh, Focus, man. Block, bring you back a bit. I can't see that. You just <laughs> there we go. Okay. Oh, that's cool. That is. That, what's that like a three liter bottle? Is it? Yeah, well, it's, it's only a one liter. Okay. Um, Maybe you're just really small, so it makes it look. Yeah, big. yeah. My tiny hands <laughs> holding it up. Um, like there's, there's a bit of a story with this one because I realised today that I am the gentrification. Um, <laughs> I am the gentrification. <laughs> So, like, you know, I basically live in a village, and my closest, like, mini supermarket, like you, equivalent to a Tesco Express, um, I've been meaning to take you there, because it's like going through some sort of time warp into the 1970s when you go oh, in the yeah. shop. Like, single pla- single pane, glass door, glass window, uh, everything inside is on that 70s colour palette between orange and brown. Oh, no, it's okay, yeah, And for yeah. any meat, you have to go to the desk, like, you know, even, like, a pack of sausages, and you have to ask them to measure it for you. Oh, no, it's okay. But this has been recently renovated, so I went there today, and they have, like, tables and chairs outside of the supermarket, in case you What's want to have a sit eat? down. I thought he was going to say, so you can eat your sausages outside. Yeah. <laughs> your sausages. And, like, literally the first thing was, like, a fridge. Like, you know, you chili, you eat it with the sandwiches and stuff. But it was full of, like, microbrewery plastic bottle beer. They heard you were coming, mate. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I am the hipsterification of where I live. (laughs) 
But what I am proud of is little village supermarket in like maybe 10, 12 aisles maximum. Two of which are for beer, one of which is for wine and spirits. No, so it's a full 25% of the shop is just alcohol <laughs> That's the thing I love about the Czech Republic. A lot of their values are pretty in line with ours, to be fair. Lots of mm. alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a statistic, and I don't know where it was drawn from, so I don't know how genuine it is, but it had the Czechs as the biggest beer drinkers in the world, with 140 litres per person per year. And the next was like Austrians or Germans with 100 litres per year. So it's like the Czechs are drinking 40% more than the next biggest drinkers. See, I think I would have thought we'd be up there, but obviously for us it's a lot of binge drinking, isn't it? So yeah. you like, you don't drink all week, then you go out on a Friday night and have about 20 pints and then fall over. Like, that's a big yeah, thing exactly. in the UK, isn't it? So like in the UK, you go to the pub and you drink and you drink to get drunk. But like in Czech culture, you just drink. All, all the time, time. But like the thing that kind of drove it home like there's an episode of Friends where Monica gradually realises her boyfriend is an alcoholic and part of that is explaining that he drinks when he goes to like you know parties to the theatre to the zoo and the zoo is the punchline and I'm like <laughs> yes <"Yeah."> that one <laughs> <laughs> that's where you buy the beer yeah? <laughs> I remember when we went to the zoo in Prague that was good because there's just like beer everywhere like mm. beer on tap I think we were hungover weren't we so we weren't <laughs> Prague Zoo is really good as well to be honest yeah it's fantastic it? it's probably one of the better zoos I've been to it's better than Dudley Zoo let's put it that <laughs> way all the sad animals <laughs> Oh, oh, very nice. You got a good choice there. That sounds yeah. decent. What have you got for tonight? I've got a 12 year old Glenn Fiddich again. But that's because we text before and I was like, oh shit, I forgot to buy beer. Luckily, I've got whiskey in. So, yeah. <laughs> the only mistake the issue I've got right now is I've already had a couple of these and I've not actually eaten anything bar a protein bar today. Okay, so this one's going to get interesting. Yeah, so this might be an interesting podcast. Well, I woke up this morning a bit late and a bit tired, and I thought, I need a monster, I need a protein bar, start the day off right, you know. Caffeine, protein, nicotine off my vape. So, a good start to the day, but then I just never got around to eating anything, and then I had a nap when I got home because I was a sleepy guy. And then I cut the grass, and now we're recording this, so... Unfortunately, whiskey is my only calorie intake at the moment, which I wouldn't <laughs> recommend kids. Don't drink whiskey on an empty stomach unless you're a top gazer, a lot more. And then you'll be alright. Yeah, very good, mate. So, where we uh, where we kicking off from? I think we right. finished last time at, uh, what were we talking about? The Babylonians, by the yeah. river. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, last time we talked about Babylon, we talked about the religion a bit as well. Um, so... Today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the Assyrians, who are kind of the last of our major civilizations that I want to talk about, and then in the, from the next episode we'll start talking about how all of this came to an end. Quick, quick snippet: the name yep. Assyria obviously drastically looks very similar to a country called Syria. Is there any link? I know geographically they're quite they're quite a distance apart yeah, from yeah, each yeah. other. East, eastern Syria is part of historic historic Assyria. Um, is northern Iraq and eastern Syria definitely there's like connections with the name um, just as like it, it can, I think like Syria as a name started under the Seleucid Empire in the Hellenistic period as like a Greek version of the name for the area and there are still people today that identify themselves as Assyrian um, oh, okay. 
it's a cultural slash religious identifier for predominantly Christian people in eastern Assyria, uh, in eastern Syria and northern Iraq. But yeah, they identify as Assyrian. So, but obviously this period we're talking about, the Christianity isn't a thing yet. So, yeah, why is there a Christian link to the Assyrian identity? That's I think because they want to identify with that older identity that existed before the Arab Islamic conquest. So that's sort of like us identified as Mercian then? It would be like if we identified with like ancient Britons, like pre-Roman, as a way of like rejecting the foreign influences. Even though we're like probably completely not, you know, related to those people. Based on our looks, we've both got dark hair (laughs) and we tan pretty easily. I'm pretty sure we're not ancient Britons because I've watched a few documentaries slash movies and they're all pasted ginger looking Irish people <laughs> covered in war paint I don't know how historically accurate that is but that's the that's the vibe I get from it yeah unfortunately the documentary film uh, King Arthur with Clive Owen is oh, a brilliant film <laughs> it doesn't make any sense um, no but I think it's to do with a kind of uh, connecting themselves to the population that existed before the Islamic conquest in the 7th 8th centuries okay um yeah, but it's it's kind of the 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 thing that defines them nowadays is their Christianity. Okay. Um, are they Coptic or are they not Christian? Christian? Ooh, they're like Catholics or. I'm not sure off the top of my head. I think okay, they're probably something that. similar to Armenian Christianity, but I don't know off the top of my head. Cool. Um, so yeah, so this is the last of our major players then to talk about. So. As we said before, they kind of are one of the last ones to emerge onto the stage. So, an Assyrian Empire had existed way back in the before times, the old Assyrian Empire, because you know historians are good at naming things. Um, and then what emerges during the late Bronze Age, where we're talking about, is the Middle Assyrians. So, they obviously had this long history they could look back to and draw back on, and they connected their current history with this ancient tradition they they had the concept of their kings going way back, all the way back to when they were a bunch of nomads in the desert before there even was in Assyria How did they keep that history out of interest? These tab- um, they, what did you they, call them? Corner thingy tablets? The cune- cuneiform tablets, yeah Is it so that they sort were, of style? Yes, okay. so they're writing down the histories new generations recording the histories like write down the same histories, adding the new bits on um, they had, there's a distinctively Mesopotamian document called a king list which is literally just like a list of kings who lived when, who came after who and it's something that scribes are always producing in the tablets and they produce these things they connect the living king with you know the ancestors and they drive the line back into this nomadic past yeah. um, obviously the people at the start of this line basically mythical figures it's hard to imagine that when they're a bunch of nomads wandering in the desert that they had like you know a king structure yeah it's a bit wishy-washy that is isn't it think yeah. like well would you have a king if you're just a bunch of nomads like you probably get a chief maybe it's just a bad translation or i think chief, it's, you know chief to king and i think it's just projecting people way back into the past to make them more legitimate yeah um and it, a lot of cultures do this like a lot of medieval European king- kingdoms like the royal families like connected themselves to the Trojan War 
through like the most ridiculous like extended nonsensical genealogies like yeah yeah this medieval king in France is somehow connected to the Trojan Wars like yeah well you can do that with a lot of stuff can't you because it's like in the UK as an example a lot of people can trace their heritage back to like Viking ancestry but so can mm-hmm. the majority of the population because obviously when you go back far enough because you've got one set of parents two set of grandparents four set of great great grandparents uh, eight sets of great 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 grandparents eventually there's that many people one of them's going to be something but I mean this more in the sense of like you like have a mythical folk hero like uh, like King Arthur and you're like oh yeah that's my great great granddad oh okay it's like that sort of thing and then just faking a genealogy to get you back said to that, that very person. dismissively like King Arthur wasn't a real person Ross um, I'm going to put this into the Trojan War category in that I think there's a historical basis there but definitely not a King Arthur with round table and everything else wait till I eat some facts about Atlantis later <laughs> <laughs> Man, we've got a fucking brawl about that yeah <laughs> anyway so they're writing a lot of histories uh, much like the Hittites so they're writing histories about their kings sorry oh, just the more whiskey just opening up yeah just pouring out <laughs> whiskey sorry this history about the kings the histories have a clear focus on military history and explaining about like you know king whoever did conquests of this and list in the battles and the glorious victories and all that sort of thing so you know unlike the babylonians where it's all about what the king built here it's about who the king fought who he beat what battles he won oh okay so like we said with the babylonians they're all known as being builders but these yes. are very much like military men like it's all about yes. the conquest the exactly, glory yep. and prestige that comes from that car. exactly um all kind of people <laughs> And there's a lot of evidence that they were like a militaristic state. Like the traditional explanation for their very sudden growth in power between the 14th and the 11th centuries BC is that they were highly militarised culture and society. Was it like a warrior culture, like European warrior culture, or was it? You keep using this phrase in European warrior culture. I've read a lot about it lately. That's why. (laughs) I'm worried where this has come from. No, it's only because, (laughs) right? Because we've been doing so much about the Bronze Age. I've been looking Mm -hmm. just out of my own interest at like European Bronze Age, like where it was at, and obviously everything. It just talks a lot about warrior culture, which we know very well because I think there's a lot of hangover from that in our society. To be honest, (laughs) like you know the. I don't know how many of the listeners have ever come to England, but people like to scrap. <laughs> they like a good fight here. And I don't know whether that's, you know, like a hangover from warrior culture. It's just, in my head, I think because I know a lot about that, I'm trying to find the, the common, commonalities between it. I mean, I I think not. I mean, I haven't read about, like, the European warrior culture. I imagine that's probably looking more like the individualistic honour-based and, you know, glory Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is, yeah. I don't think that's what's going on in the Middle East, uh, uh, the Near East. I think what you're looking at there is much more organised state armies, more professional. Um, So I don't think that's what we're looking at. Um, I think it's more the ability, like, you know, that you have organised states that can produce relatively large armies, relatively organised, relatively disciplined and it's a different sort of military machine compared to like uh, a tribal culture praising a particular guy as being a good warrior Okay. Um, so I don't think it's that um, but yeah they're sort of focused on militarism and aggression definitely seems to be a factor in their very sudden growth so where we start with them so we know that back in the distant past they had like a large empire um, 
back in the 3rd millennium BC. By the start of the Late Bronze Age, they were basically a, an unusually large city-state. So a single city with a territory around it supporting it. When you say uh, unusually large? Unusually like, large, yeah. Like physically this, this city, or you're just talking about the state as a whole? The state around okay. it unusually large. Uh, the city itself is called Assur. Um, I've heard of that and, before. Why have I heard of Assur before? Where I mean, is it, it geographically? Uh, is it next to a river somewhere? Probably. I think off the top of my head I can tell you. It's, it's on the Tigris. Is it northern, yeah. northern Iraq? Yep, northern, northern Iraq. Yep, okay. Why do I know that? Don't I mean, know. it existed Carry for on. a long time. Okay. And after our period, so in the Iron Age, the first millennium BC, Assyria would go on to have a massive empire, and they would also be um, frequently, uh, frequently kind of criticised by uh, Israelite writers in the Old Testament of the Bible. They were for for their cruelty, brutality, and aggression. Okay. Uh, there's a description of their capital as the city of blood in oh, the Hebrew less. Bible. Uh, Good question, the fir- oh, yep. Geographically, they're very close to Mesopotamia. I mean, is th- they belong to the region of Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamia okay. is basically modern Iraq, plus minus. Yeah, so they why, are at the top where was half. the overlap between them and the Babylonians? So the Babylonians are in southern Iraq. Okay. Babylon itself is close to modern Baghdad. Yeah. And they are in northern Iraq and eastern Syria. Okay. So they must have had a border then? Yeah, yeah, definitely. They bordered, okay. That's going to be important in a bit it's hard when you can't see a map to try and imagine where everything yeah. is isn't it that's why I'm trying yeah, to link yeah. it all in my head I'm like okay so that's there that's here okay cool follow me but yeah if you've kind of drew a line through the middle of Iraq that's roughly where the border is cool. um, but we're going to come back to that because that's relevant um, so yeah they had been reduced down to being a large city state and the likelihood is that they were a vassal of Mitanni who we mentioned okay. back early on um, we know, for example, that the king of Mitanni sacked the city of Assur and he stole a gold and silver door and brought it back to his capital. Seems like a very specific thing to go there for. I'm guessing the... he didn't go there for the door. No, he didn't go there for the door. It was like a trophy from... Look at look at this door. To be fair, what if you came nice to my house and you knocked on the door and you was like, oh, hang on, this door's made of gold. You'd be yeah, pretty impressed, Yeah, I probably you? would come back and steal your door. <laughs> um... When things started to go wrong for Mitanni, i.e. when they started losing power to the Hittites, yeah. it looks like the Assyrians rose up, rebelled, um, and then they kind of ate away the eastern half of what had been the old state of Mitanni. Okay. Um, so they gradually grew to occupy like half of Mitanni's territory. Um, but even after they'd become clearly like a, you know, a territorial power, they were not accepted by the other great powers for a very long time. Why? Um, because you... they were on a player for so long. Exactly, yeah. It's like, oh, nuke it on the block doesn't count. You might remember we were talking about uh, a, where a king of Assyria had written to the Egyptian pharaoh on these terms of like, oh, hello, brother. And the Babylonians yeah. immediately wrote back like, why are you accepting a letter from this guy? The Babylonians claiming to be the overlords of Assyria, yeah. even though in reality they weren't. Similarly, though, they wrote a letter in roughly the same period to the Hittite king, again calling him brother, and the Hittite king wrote back, and he wrote, quote, 
On what account should I write to you about brotherhood? Were you and I born from one mother? So That's a bit of a kick in the bollocks, aren't it? It is a bit, isn't it? Well, considering he's calling the Egyptian king, like, brother, and all the yeah. other guys, brother, like... That's all. So, that pissed me off. No wonder they went so militaristic. Yeah. So he, I'd be pissed he off that like, everyone's just like belittling you, essentially. <laughs> they're like, they're right there. It's like, oh, yeah, we're sad now. Like, we've got our own shit going on. Yeah, I have a letter. And they're like, nah, you wanker. I don't want to see your letter. Like, that would yeah. annoy me. And then they've basically gone around and conquered, like, fought everyone because of it. Don't basically, yeah. Standing up for themselves. Don't blame them. <laughs> So yeah, like you know, the Hittites reject this like ceremonial brotherhood. They're like, okay, are we literally brothers? Like, it's the only explanation. Um, oh, so yeah, so it took them a long time to be accepted by the others. Eventually, they got to a point where like their power was enough that okay, we can no longer deny this. We oh yeah, they demand them. that. Yeah. Um, but it took them a long time to get there. And also, one of the things that's kind of notable with the Assyrians is. Um, that unlike some of the other things we've looked at where, you know, when they conquer territory, we saw that you end up with this kind of local vassal king and central king relationship. Uh, for the Hittites we saw this and for Mitanni as well. The Assyrians tended to place Assyrian governors in control. So they didn't kind of um, co-opt the local elite, they replaced them. They didn't trust the locals. <laughs> yeah. But that isn't to say that they tried to change the culture. They accepted... Um, the local cultures they didn't try to force the Syrian culture or religion or language on them but they removed the leadership and they replaced it with Syrians it's a smart move really if you think about it isn't it because obviously you've already conquered someone you're going to really upset the apple cart if you try and enforce your own religion and stuff on mm. people so it's a smart move isn't it like you hear about this quite a lot especially around this time it seems like quite a mature move for these child kings to be making so you're like okay well you can do your own thing but we're in charge yeah I think it's like you see it later with the Persians and also with the Seleucids like there's a real thing of so long as you accept that we're in charge you can do what you want yeah um, how it should be the libertarian inside of me is demanding that but then to kind of you know kick away your growing love for the Assyrians later on their method of control was to deport population so you conquer an area and you move the entire population somewhere else Um, and what they started doing was moving people into the area of northern Syria which had been relatively underpopulated and underdeveloped and by moving people in there and using the state resources to build the irrigation networks they made it into the food bread basket of their empire oh okay that's quite smart so they literally created the farming Yes, for the to feed the empire. Yes, yeah. by uprooting I people. The people were too fucking happy about that. Like, to be yeah, fair. I mean that would that would suck. Yeah. Like but literally, I, I they just so they bowl in, conquer the land, and they go right. You, you're moving a thousand, well, five hundred yes. miles away. Yep. Start working the land. Yeah, and this becomes kind of a feature in the Middle East in the first millennium. Because you, you think of like you know. Hang on, first what? millennium. Later on. Okay. Um, so if you think like you know we keep referencing the rivers of Babylon thing or that whole thing is about when the Israelites have been taken from Israel and forced to live in Babylon yeah oh this is that what the this... song's about is it yeah yeah, yeah. oh okay it's... yeah by the rivers of Babylon we sat down we wept when we remembered Zion 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 Israel. being Israel yeah oh obviously that makes perfect sense now you said that yeah oh, okay <laughs> I did never put that them two yeah. together to be honest Great song as well, Boney M. Classic. And that's where also where the song comes from, because it's you know the association of the you know, the Caribbean slave experience connecting it with 
the Jews of Israel ah. being taken as slaves to Babylon. It's the connection. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so this is something that I think the Assyrians introduce into the area and other later on later empires will carry on this practice because it works apart from the fact that I know they've got horrific punishments these Assyrians sound alright <laughs> they seem like they've got it unlocked to be fair they're making some wise moves like if you think about it on like mm. a political level a militaristic level they're making some really sm- obviously it's not great like, I'm not advocating to uproot people <laughs> and move them and be like forced labour I'm just saying like from a like a geographically political point of view these are actually some really smart moves they're making yeah they've become drought, very like, yeah they become very successful, very powerful, very quickly. So they sort of emerge in the in the 14th century BC, and very quickly, they're within 100 years or so. They've started intervening in Babylonian politics. They're making military incursions. They're overthrowing Babylonian kings that displease them. And in the 13th century BC, they have kind of their highest point with a king and Go don't attempt the name. Tukulti Nina to the first. Oh yeah, Nina. Uh, he's kind of the high point of them. He successfully campaigns down and conquers Babylon. Names himself king of Babylon. So, I wasn't aware of this, okay. Yeah, so the, Assyri- the Assyrians are clearly identified. Babylon is the number one threat and also the biggest target. Well, yeah, they're the cultural, like they're the cultural yes. hub of all this game that we've been talking about for like six exactly, episodes. Yeah. So after that, does Babylon cease to exist? No. So okay. he he names himself the king. Um, he then gets assassinated. Oh, okay. Um, and from then on, Assyria, in the, at the end of the 13th century, gets into this kind of death spiral for a bit of assassinations and instability. Okay. So they're not able to maintain the control of Babylon. Okay. But for kind of a high point, they are able to get down. So there. at a point, they ruled over Babylon. Yes, for a brief time. Um, but there have been several Assyrian kings who had clearly been trying to conquer Babylon for the prestige and the wealth and the power it would bring. Well, it's like it's like conquering Rome, and it. It's yes, like, exactly. I guess it's like that exactly sort of like thing that. because it's Babylon is the is the thing. Everyone speaks the language. Everyone knows the language. They're the, they're the prestige, aren't they? And then yeah, you just exactly. Spank them. There's a lot of glory that comes with that. I think. Yeah, and following on from the assassination of. Tukulti Nina to the first. There's yeah, ins- instability. There's infighting, and in that period, a new group of people called the Arameans begin settling the area. Um, and what area? The f- Sorry, mate. What, what area? Yeah, the, the area of Assyria, so like okay. northern Iraq. Hang on. Um, so I'm a bit lost here. So you've they've took over Babylon, or claimed to have. They've gone through mm-hmm. a death spiral, and then a new group of people have moved in and started. Yeah, settling areas around their territory. Okay. Um, which is a bit of a cycle that seems to happen during, like, the Bronze... The, even in the earlier phases of the Bronze Age. It's a bit yeah, of a cycle. Yeah, these movements of peoples. Yes. Probably from, and, like, some war-ravaged lands somewhere. I'm guessing there's no real path to follow to where those people come from. We've just not got it. Uh, let me have a very quick check. Because it, it seems a lot of these, like these, yep. like these cr- groups of cultural, like a cultural group of people, like moving in. So there must be something that's moving those people, isn't there? So it's probably, yeah, there's definitely more. a cycle of movement between 
like if you think of the um you have like the settled farming regions around the irrigation around the rivers and then in like the scrubland in between you have semi-nomadic people with herds yeah. and you have this constant movement backwards and forwards that's where these sort of groups come from i think it's hard to link it to like what life is now because like you think of okay what does a english person look like mm-hmm. and then you have this idea in your head of like a cultural english person what they look like what does a cultural italian look like and you have this mm-hmm. like idea in your head of what a italian person looks like there seems to be a lot of movement of these separate culture groups so i always try and pin down in my head like well what do these people look like and it feels very difficult to do that because there seems yeah. to be a lot of movement and migration of people in this, this obviously the time period is it is a lot of years but it, it's hard to pin down like in your head like i always try to imagine what they'd look like in my head and i just can't imagine it yeah, I was, I was just having a quick look to try and figure out where Aramaeans come from. It seems like the name has a connection with um, Western Syria and Lebanon, but I think it's a oh, bit... Because okay. I've heard of Aramaic before, definitely. Where have yes, I heard that so the New Testament of the Bible was written in Aramaic. Ah, okay, that's where I probably know it from. Then, it so. would eventually go on and become the dominant language in the central part of the Middle East okay. um, until it was replaced by Arabic um, so yeah they would eventually go on to become culturally dominant dominant in the area um, but the Assyrian state more or less would survive the end of the late Bronze Age which makes them relatively unique because almost no one else we talk about is going to survive the collapse which we're going to get into okay. next time um, but their state does continue in some form or another into the era that comes after Now, we've already been saying a lot that it's quite a militarised society. Um, And it's unusually centralised. Like, a lot of land is owned by the king himself, not by the nobles, not by the temples, but by the king. And he gives it out in return for service. So it's also not like the thing of, like, okay, this goes to this class of people. It's like, you get this specifically for doing this task and it goes back when you die it's not like you can pass the land along I would say from my extensive gaming knowledge <laughs> as the most centralised you can do things means you have ultimate control over things doesn't it that so is the Crusader King's that's official that's the Crusader King's way so what I'm <laughs> thinking right now is maybe that's got something to do with how um successful they were with the, the sheer amount of centralization because that means if you do have a king that really knows who's a, who's a good strategist and he can figure things out if everything's centralized he has total control over everything everything doesn't he so i mean that's that, the positive side but then the flip side is when the king is weak or the king gets assassinated yeah, and there's no yeah yeah um I want us to at some point talk about the late roman empire because this is exactly the dynamic in the late roman empire um anyway but yeah so the king seems to have a lot of power and it's maybe maybe that's a distinction from where we talked about egypt where you had these sort of strange digressions where the entire egyptian court moved out to the desert and changed religion for a bit trying to upend those old established structures maybe that assyria doesn't have that so much um but yes, yeah, so they celebrate and prize their military prowess. They also celebrate their destructive ability. So there was a fortress at a place called Arinu. And the king went there and he you know, burned it to the ground, destroyed the fortress into dust and literally brought the dust back to the capital 
as like That's a symbolic a move, man, yeah. isn't it? That is a big move. Like you're that claiming is, some stuff there. That is big dick energy. Here's the dust of our enemies. That yeah, that's yeah. big dick energy, man. That's, <laughs> that's impressive to be fair. You can't um, out but sometimes like sort of look at that sort of, obviously this horrific suffering <laughs> that goes along with that, but sometimes you just God, God, that's a big dick move, man. <laughs> that's a big move, man, to be able to do that, isn't it? Like crumble yeah. your enemies into dust and then bring the dust home and show your folks like look what I did. Yeah. Uh, you know it's hard to pull off that sort of thing like nah, literally like yeah, yeah. Um, so p- the population within Assyria everybody well all men were eligible for military service everybody's eligible all for- men yes oh okay eligible for military service everybody's eligible for building service i.e. go and build the king a new monument uh, this goes king- back into that centralisation as well yep, doesn't yep, it yep. okay and so you know there's a lot of building projects of course our friend Takulti Ninurna he built himself a new capital city with his name which was probably abandoned as soon as he died um, one thing we know in Assyria is that you could substitute someone else in your place so you get call up for the army or to go and labour in the camps you could substitute someone else and the normal way you have to do that is if that person owed you money so we get back oh, once we again go. to that debt, debt slavery. Yeah. Yep. Which is such a feature of this entire region through the period. Ross, I distinctively remember buying you a shot when we were in a bar last and you never brought me a shot back. So oh, does that also, mean Yep. I think I'm that... going to the fields. <laughs> does that mean you're going to a Syria to fight in Mortal Kombat? <laughs> That's mad, but that's the thing, isn't it? It's still, yeah. it's so... I think because it's so, like, different to how we accept things nowadays, like the fact that this debt trap spiral thing was just so commonplace to them. So anybody yeah. who doesn't listen to the previous episodes, basically, if you owed someone money and didn't pay it back, you ended up as their slave. That's the long and short answer, yeah. isn't it? Like, you ended up as a slave from borrowing yeah. money. And it's like eventually the entire society seems to become structured around debt trapping people because it's the only way to sustain it. It's like gambling, um, ain't it? Basically, you're gambling with your life essentially, and you borrow money. But it's the thing, like you know, you're gambling because you have to pay taxes. Well, yeah, you like got to live, haven't you? Of course, you I don't. Mean, it, it, but I mean, it's like I think that's something that in our modern economy we struggle to understand the idea that you'd borrow money just to pay tax. Um, yeah, yeah. Obviously and that's why you can't that. escape. We well, said so we're far from that. Our life in. Well, my life in England is far from that, but I'm sure that might make sense. Yeah, exist I don't in some doubt place, that exists. Some I don't doubt very, exist. you know, poor, poverty-riven places in the world. I, I, I bet that's still a thing, to be honest. It'd be interesting. I might do a little googling after this about find that. But I bet that sort of thing probably just still exists somewhere. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that slavery is still a thing. Um. But it's also one of these things, like you know, man, though, and it's it's yeah, horrible yeah. when you think when you really think of the consequence that makes you feel sick, man. To be honest, it's yeah. horrible, isn't it? That people that much suffering through owing of money. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things with this is like when you look at history, like obviously, in many ways, people in the past were the same as us and they're identified, but otherwise, they're really fucking weird and different. morally, I think they're very different. And I think. Sometimes we get a bit too much into like looking at oh they're just like us but wearing different hats because it's the old days. 
their morality and their understanding of people is very, very different. Sometimes they're very, very strange. I think the logic isn't there either. That seems like sometimes it's like you make like we're talking about these kings making these like centralization moves, which is a very logical path. But then other things happen. You know, that's so illogical. Like, why would you choose to do that? Yeah, I mean, like the reasoning behind some decisions just doesn't exist in our worldview, yeah. so therefore it doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like when you go to like some amazing medieval cathedral or something. Like the cost benefit for us makes no sense. Florence is a prime example of that, isn't it? <laughs> the, the, the cathedral in Florence, the, massive cathedral, the, yeah. the second the Duomo, biggest, yeah. second biggest in the world after St Petersburg, I think. And it, you look at it, you stand outside this cathedral, and it's like. How is one building so big and made out of block like that? Yeah. It blows your way how big it is. But then you think about it like to build that today, that's like a billion pound project. Like yeah. straight then, I suppose it's different though, isn't it? Because you had such a dis. Obviously, you have a what disproportional wealth, like the what you know of of people. But back then, it's probably even more so. Like some people literally had. Well, the majority of people have nothing, and then the wealthy had everything. But it's also like with that sort of thing, you're considering it as like a literal matter of saving your soul from eternal damnation. Yeah, like, so the logic the of it is it. different. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so yeah, so it's a society that's very militarized. The government's very powerful, and one of the features of Assyrian society, um, is that there was a lot of control of women and what women could do, what they could wear, where they could go. So, one, Assyrian culture is quite legalistic. So we have some very specific laws which have survived and we therefore can see what they value. So they've got like a written code of laws. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Written legal codes have been a feature in the Middle East since, like, 2000 BC. Yeah, I know. It's come quite a lot, hasn't it, about written law. Um, So, for example, if you are a woman and your husband has been captured during a war, you must wait for two years, during which time you must be supported by your family or the local community. Because obviously, you know, normally you'd be women can own stuff or do stuff, so therefore they have to be supported by the husband. So if the husband's captured, her family or the village she belongs to must pay and support her. That seems like a little nice thing to do. You say that. Would you want to support like random woman in your street? No, of course, one. Right, so how do you imagine... That no, I mean, community... it was nice for her. It's probably nice for her. Yeah, but I mean, how do you imagine the community that have been forced to support a woman? You know what? It depends on what the view is of him being captured at war. Because if he's a hero for being captured at war, then she probably actually has a good, great time from it. Well, apart from losing a husband. <laughs> That's probably... Yeah, but if she's like, you know, if the neighbours see her as like a pain in the ass woman burden, you can't get yeah, along with... it's going to be different, yeah. It depends yeah. how they see it, though, isn't it? Like... In my head, I'm thinking they may see it as a burden, but they may see it as like your husband's a hero. So I think it depends. it depends. It was going to come down to, you know, people are people, so it's going to come down to how do they feel about that person. Yeah, but it's like how military um, men are nowadays. Like in America, there's a lot of like thank you for your service to military mm. veterans and stuff like that. In other countries, it's something looked down upon. So it depends. I think it'd be hard to get that vibe, wouldn't it? Like it could be, though. It could be a case of where if your man's talking war as a prisoner it might be like your man's hero it depends on that culture and you're saying they're very militaristic maybe it's culture, more valued it very yeah, much could be like mm. he has gone and served and been captured he's a hero it could be that 
it could be that. I think that I think that would make logical sense, but you can't necessarily apply yeah. logic to this time period. I mean, I think that sort of thing also relies on having a concept of the nation. Yeah. Like the idea that we belong to something, and this is definitely a modern idea. This okay. doesn't exist yeah. before. In most places, it doesn't exist before the 19th century. Um, so if you don't have that concept of we are all the same and someone's committing to our greater good, then I think it doesn't exist. Yeah, that that does make sense, to be honest. Anyway, so she had to be supported for two years by the family community. After that, she was free to get married again. But if after that period she's remarried and her husband returns from captivity, she must go back to him. Yeah. So imagine... That's interesting. It's not like you're writing letters back and forward. Yeah, you, yeah. Your partner goes missing. Years later. Or ten years later. Yeah. You thought they've dead. You never heard from them. You have new life. You have, you know, maybe you were like eighteen when you were married. Then you haven't seen the person in ten years. Now you're married to someone else. You have life. You have children. Now you must go back to someone you haven't seen for ten years. Yeah, that's gonna suck. That's gonna suck. That seems a little. It does seem fair though. By their standards, I'm not by modern standards. It's not fair, but by their standards, that seems like probably the fairest thing I've heard because most of his batshit crazy. And of course, you know, when she must go back to her new to her previous husband, any children she has with the new husband will stay with the new husband. Oh, okay. Well, that's <laughs> going to cause fucking issues, isn't it? Yep. Oh yeah, I didn't think about the kids. Yeah, what the fuck's yep. going to happen there? So the the children in the new relationship remain with the new husband who will then go and find a new wife yeah um, yeah yeah it's messy I didn't thought about that yeah birth control not a thing well yeah <laughs> good point yeah um, who needs birth control when you got the pull out method <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so there's a lot of restrictions for what women can and can't do now women who are married are allowed out by themselves so that's nice but they must cover their heads while they're out of, out in public I saw a little bit about this yeah but unmarried people are not allowed to cover their heads yes. is that correct unmarried women slaves and prostitutes are not allowed to cover their heads so that's that seems like a status thing doesn't it to yes cover your exactly head, to be like oh my head's covered because I'm married you're yeah. not allowed to and to be fair, these sort of like dress code rules existed, I would say, until the 19th century in Europe. Like these sort of, not like strictly enforced, but as like a social rule well, of what married women would wear. Well, they still exist today. A lot of predominantly in the Muslim culture, you've got a hijab and like uh, the other headscarves and things like that. Uh, but I don't that's know. a little bit different. That's about that's like, about modesty, it's about isn't it? Modesty and vanity, well, exactly. This, is, this seems more of a status thing. Yes. That only married women can cover their heads. Yes. I wonder what the covering of the head is. Is it like the coverage from the, the I, sky? or? I couldn't find a good example of what it would be. So if anyone's listening and would like to send it into our Twitter or to our email, the Twitter is... Hang on, we've got ma- an email address. We have. It's wearemakersofhistory at gmail.com. Nice. Oh, and so of course we have, because that's what we've signed us up to. Okay, yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if anyone actually knows about that, we would love to hear from you. Man, um, I'd love to have an email off a fan. That would be amazing, that'd be so to good. be fair. Honestly, if anyone's listening, just send us an email and we are makers... What is it? Say it again. We are makers of history at gmail.com. Oh, so it's literally our name. Yeah. And then at gmail.com. That would be amazing. Like, if anybody wants to email in and just give us any feedback, I'd really... I'd love that. I would absolutely love it. 
So anyway, as you were saying, like married women, it's a status that gets to cover the head. Whereas a prostitute, if she was found to have covered her head, she would first of all receive 50 lashes from a whip. She would then be stripped naked and she would have hot pitch, like, you know, tar poured onto her head. What the fuck, man? Because she's taking a status that she's not allowed to have. There has to be more beyond that status for the, for such a severe punishment as that. There I, must be something y- more to that. There must be. I suspect that it's because prostitutes are seen as like a, a polluted class in some way. Yeah, but now what I'm thinking is that the whole head coverage would be... There must be something more to that, the head covering the head. Do you know mm. what I mean? For it to be that severe a punishment. Yeah, I think it's, well, it's like, by it's the time, like to be fair, like, like, a lot yeah. of stuff seems severe by the time period, don't it? It's yeah, a lot about the respectability. I know, for example, in like ancient Athens, like women, married citizen women, well, not citizens because women can be citizens, but you know, like free married women, basically always covered, always in the house. Um. Similarly, if a servant in the palace spoke to one of the palace women, so royal wives, concubines, etc., if he spoke to her while not being properly dressed, he would receive a hundred whiplashes. And if a palace woman, so royal family, wife, etc., was found alone with a man, not her husband, death for both of them. Wow. Yep. Okay, so there, I bet there weren't a lot of shagging beyond the seas going on there, to be honest, if <laughs> well, that was the punishments. If you have a specific law for it, that would suggest people are it doing it. It does happen. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, it doesn't necessarily, though, because of the centralisation you said before. It's probably just one king that got pissed off because he's missing <laughs> talking to some geezer and he got really jealous about it and then it became set in stone. I think that yeah. is actually way more likely than the fact that it happened all the time. I think, honestly, I think it must have been a case where one king got jealous and then it got written in stone. King insult first. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, I mean, the laws are very prescriptive and very harsh. Um, I know that, for example, punishment for crimes often was with mutilation. Um, so a woman who's stolen something would have her ears cut off by her husband or have her nose cut off by the victim of the theft poor nose it's about disfiguring people you, you ever see yeah. what someone with no nose looks yeah, like yeah it's gross isn't it yeah. exactly and it's also like again a thing of targeting you know, women and femininity taking away their appearance yeah okay um, making them like essentially socially outcast out of just interest where would you start the cut to cut someone's nose off probably from the side no? see I was but, thinking from yeah. the top oh but fuck, I've got, no, that's I've got horrible. a big nose and I was obviously got yeah big, you did a fucking maybe that's what or... that big bump of cartilage is for maybe that's what Protection. I've got it protected it from like slices thousands of years of fozzes evolving to be <laughs> yeah because we all keep being naked in front of improper women and we can get our noses <laughs> stealing <off>. shit <laughs> And an uh, interesting one is there was a specific law for the soldiers which said, um, this is a quote from translation, if a man shall have intercourse with his brother in arms, he shall be made into a eunuch, i.e. be castrated. Yes. This is the first known law punishing homosexuality in the military. That's rough as well. 
having your balls chopped off. This one's interesting because like when we talked about the um, uh, epic of Gilgamesh last time, yeah, like that has some very very heavy homosexual undertones going on in it. Like I don't think it's even undertones. That's great. So I love it. No, 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 but Gilgamesh is from Babylon. Oh yeah, of course. Of the same period. Um, and here it's like you know punishment for homosexual. Do you think that was? Do you think that might have been like a anti-Babylonian thing, or do you think that was just a specific thing? Possibly. I think certainly, like you know, like things in the Hebrew Bible, like you know, condem- condemning, like you know, wearing women's clothes or stuff like that. That's definitely reaction reaction against things that we know were happening in Babylon. Um, but I think also um, another aspect of it, and it's kind of the same with the Greeks and Romans, is gay stuff is fine so long as you're not being penetrated. Yeah, like well, and it's we, about who the Greeks does are well what. known for it, aren't they? Spe- like specifically Spartans, and everyone thinks of the Spartans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you know, three hundred the film, these big musty guys. But it was like sort of commonplace and to take when they're out on campaign to take a male partner. Yeah, but it weren't gay if you were doing it. Yeah, if it was Be- gay, if receiving, you were receiving was the it. problem. Yeah, yes. and then and that's how you lost your status, weren't it? So it's interesting, exactly, yeah. isn't it? How... So I think that's where this is going in a Syrian culture and society um, but yeah I mean like again we'll talk about Spartans in a separate series but yeah oh my god <laughs> all about the bumming um, and more about the state instituted paedophile relationships oh nice yeah, yeah. just like the Catholic Church oh you can that <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not wrong, am I? <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> Look. But, um... So, yeah, so I think it's like... There's quite a strict... Uh, you know, crime and punishment and... What to us seem like very disproportionate punishments for crimes. Massively disproportionate punishment to crimes by the side of things. Mm. So... The, the, I think the most damaging one for me... God, this, is, this is a little section I looked into. A little okay. bit about uh, what they did to each other. And it's the setting the babies on fire that really got the, me going. The what? Yeah, so... They were well known, the Assyrians, for their brutal punishments. And they used to set people on fire. Like That was like a big thing for them. And the reason why it was such a big thing... Is because they believed that if you set someone on fire... It denied them the afterlife... Oh. But they used to do children as well. Oh my god! Like babies, like there's there's plenty of documented uh, um, accounts of burning of children, like like the children of your enemies and stuff, because it denies them the afterlife. But can, can you imagine throwing a baby on a fire and like watching it burn? Like what the f- like that was. Everything else about the Assyrians is super cool, and then you get to this bit, and you know what? Nice, no, feel a bit sick to be honest. Like yeah. it's disgusting when you think about it, and it like yeah. they, like they, they used to like impale people and then chop with the hands and feet off. Like their their punishments are so gruesome, it's unreal. Like when you, to be honest, I only looked at it five minutes because I was like, I'm not, I don't actually want to read anymore. <laughs> it's that gruesome. The detail of the things I was reading, like the, the, the setting on fire was a massive thing for them because I didn't realise this until after I read it, but. It, don't always see the afterlife so you're like you're not just 
terribly killing someone in the probably you're the, destroying the worst them forever. way. You're destroying them forever. That's horrifying. Yeah, it was it was commonplace to chuck the kids on there as well with the adults, and yeah, it's gruesome, man. And the empowerment was a big thing for them. I don't know why I would have had it in my head because obviously because of Vlad the Impaler, I always mm. thought like he was the one that sort of made that <laughs> the empowerment mainstream. But these guys were doing it way before then. Yeah, no, I think with Vlad the Impaler, it's just the scale he was doing it yeah. at a time when it wasn't commonplace to do it. Yeah, but it seemed extremely commonplace to the Syrians. Yeah, I mean, I know for like the Neo Assyrian Empire, so this existed in like the, I think 900s to 700s, famously brutal. This is what the biblical writers, when I spoke about the City of Blood, this is what they're referring to as the Neo Assyrian Empire. It's incredibly violent and aggressive. Maybe that's what I read it on then. But I can imagine that, you know, that culture came from somewhere, so I imagine there's a continuity. Yeah, it was pretty graphic, the stuff I was reading. I sort of, I didn't spend a lot of time on it, to be honest, because I was a bit disturbed after reading it. Um, But they had a lot of, like, really horrific, like, I was just reading, there was a paper actually written by an American university that talked specifically about the, um, like, punishments from the Assyrians. And they're, ri- they're all the worst punishments you can think of throughout, like middle, you know, like the middle age punishments mm-hmm. in Europe, are like gruesome, like the rack and stuff like that. They got just as creative the Assyrians did with it. Like they were really creative with some of their punishments and really grotesque, to be honest. I mean, this is like you know one of the, I guess, more depressing things about humanity is we get really creative with doing horrible things. Yeah, to how to other. punish each other like that. It, it's mad, isn't it? Like you, you talk about, you know. Like, saying before like you can you can idolise it like how well they did with the centralisation when you think of it like as a computer game yep like you think yeah I've got this little empire I'm gonna make everything under my control and then conquer everything else and it feels like they were the leaders of these empires treating it like a computer game (laughs) with no moral implications because they're just burning children at will basically because they didn't want them no, I don't, yeah. what I'm saying that is like children of their enemies. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just chucking a chucking a child on a fire, like how gruesome is that? Like, I don't think there's many humans alive today that would willingly do that. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah, I, it's. I think it's very hard to get into the understanding of it, and I think it's also like one of the less mentioned, you know, things we should applaud our historians for is they go through some fucking gruesome shit and like writing about it completely dispassionate like oh yes we live this culture did this xyz horrifying thing i, I only spent four like five ten minutes on it and i was already disturbed enough i needed a little lie down and a quark <laughs> like it was like it's so, horrific yeah. when you read about what they did to each other and that just seems commonplace and that's another thing what we said they are so different to us like they are people yeah. they, they are literally the same they are human beings these people are but they were capable of such evil upon each other. It blows your mind how... Like, imagine that being your job to toss babies on a fire. <laughs> like, what the fuck, man? It's hard when that's on your CV, trying to get a new job. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't think Cabri World's going to employ you <laughs> as a tour guide. Like, oh, you toss babies on a fire for a living. I'm sorry, Mr. Asher Burnipal. I don't think we're going to accept your, your application to the nursery. <laughs> <laughs> to hate travel relations. <laughs> Fucking madness, ain't it, man? It, but that's it. They are humans. These people mm. are people. They just don't have the same moral code as us do, though. Yeah, and it's 
you know, you can't project our morality onto them. You can't say, like, try and understand their actions through our logic. But at the same time, um, and uh, there was recently a thing like uh, the historian Brett Devereaux was writing about this as well. You can judge historical societies. You can, you don't have to be like, oh, well, they considered it was good and right. You can be like, well, they might have thought that, that but, but they were wrong. Yeah. You can say that. Yeah. We don't have to moral relativize everything. But, yeah, to but the equally, of the it, doesn't, time. it doesn't make them the baddies when they're all baddies. Yeah. As, could they understand that they are the baddies? Yeah. And if the answer to that is no, then it's like, well, how do you assess them? As equally, a... in 3,000 years, the human brain has gone through large amounts of development through selective breeding basically isn't it through human interaction to breed our brains are surely uh, different I, to how they were through thousand years i think ago. not is actually the answer for this one i mean i'm not a biologist but my understanding is biologically we're basically identical That's mad, that um is. because evolutionary pressures like natural selection don't apply to humans because you yeah, can be good like point. yeah good point it the dumbest really. most useless person but there's going to be food available yeah and there's going to be mating advantages. Exactly. So, you can be, you know, yeah. the most idiot inbred failsome, but, you know, we've got to secure our land, and that family over there, they need a contract to secure the land, so you're marrying their beautiful daughter. Off you go, try not to dribble on her. Yeah. So I think evolutionary pressure doesn't apply to humans. The thing is, though, maybe we... I don't know how, but we're way more squeamish than people used to be. Imagine giving someone 50 lashes. Imagine how much... Now, if purely I picked cultural, you up... Purely cultural. You, and you had to give 50 lashes to someone, you'd probably have PTSD from that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, probably people did at the time. Yeah. You know, it's the same as, like, you know, when you have something like uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is oh, based on... Bad, but it's based so on the writer's bad. memoirs, right? Or it's based on a novel, but it's based Great on... Great film, his... but it's, it's fucking disturbing. And, you know, he's, like, chopping a Frenchman to death with a shov- shovel in the book. I can't remember if it's in the film or not. People were it routinely doing that. I think it that. is, yeah, I think it is when he rams that shovel into the. And then he's like shovel. in the trench with the Frenchman. So. But, you know, there's definitely like shovel based death. 100 years ago, that was commonplace. Well, yeah, like flame throwing a bunch of people to death, like that was commonplace. Yeah. Can you imagine flame throwing someone to death now? Watching them scream. We'll be frowned upon. Royal. I think you would get cancelled by Twitter if you did that. Probably would, yeah. <laughs> Probably would get cancelled if you did that. <laughs> but, yeah, so I think that. Roughly assesses the Assyrians then. So that's our last of our major powers that we need to talk about. So next time we'll go into how that came to an end. But we have some time left. And Fars, I think there's a topic that you've wanted to be talking about. Don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you're talking about Atlantis. I'm talking about Atlantis. <laughs> you want to talk about the facts of Atlantis? Is that what you're telling me? So what... Why? Because it kind of came up a bit, and it's definitely when you talk about these Asian topics, it's something that's always in the background. I think, especially nowadays, because like internet discourse is for some reason full of Atlantis conspiracy theoryism. Um. So, what I wanted to start with as our start point is comparing the Atlantis mythology compared to the Trojan War mythology. Okay. Okay. So, Trojan War we established happened somewhere 12th, 13th century BC existed in a whole series of spoken word poems and epics 
eventually someone wrote that down in the 8th century which kind of set it in stone so 400 years after the event and then from there the kind of the written version passed down and it's it's the Iliad and the Odyssey that you can go to any bookshop today and you can buy the different so what we what we do what we can say the Iliad first of all existed in many different forms and stories there's lots of related stories lots of variants and kind of the first version to get written down became the definitive version right but there's a lot of supporting stories and mythology around it there's lots of other stories about the heroes from the Trojan War we can compare Atlantis so Atlantis comes up in Plato's writing right which is in classical yeah. Athens in 5th century BC I want to say fourth, no 4th century BC excuse me and it's quite a different logic of how the story got there so Plato claims that this story was told to Solon who was an Athenian politician and lawgiver several centuries earlier who was told it by Egyptian priests who had passed the story down for thousands of years as a secret story the logic of this is completely different like you know the Iliad it's everybody's telling the versions of this story and it's backed up with semi-historical facts lots of historical facts backing it up as we look back but you know you can see there's lots of different variants lots of different stories lots of people telling the same story one person happened to write it down and that's the version that we have whereas this is coming from apparently a single secret source delivered to one person's lap it's Top a different logic of how it gets there also the um, the time scale involved so the Trojan Water's home in writing it down is four or five hundred years when we were talking Plata. about uh, oh the Iliad you're on about Sorry. Iliad, yeah, Iliad. Iliad. Yeah, yeah. events to Homer is four or five hundred years when we talked about the Iliad I was comparing it to the Nibelungen lead which is the, this German story which is like 500, year, uh, 500 AD the historical events to 1200 AD when it was written down so 700 years yeah. preserving some details but it's super garbled and you have to kind of really part, look carefully to see the historical element by comparison the Atlantis story and the way it gets used now is this story is preserved perfectly in oral format for 12,000 years and is then written down there's obviously massive holes in that massive difference Yeah. so for me this idea of a secret lost story being passed down the, dis- the distance of the time is too great it doesn't make sense for something like that and it's coming down a single source which we know isn't how these things work with the oral traditions it comes from multiple sources yes, and becomes one changed and... exactly but the core of the story is there obviously there's many different very... same as like King Arthur we mentioned King Arthur earlier the basics of King Arthur Romano British warlord fighting Saxons true happened everything else is bullshit bullshit and fantasy what I think Atlantis is because Atlantis is only a very small part of Plato's writing and basically what Plato did was sit down and say okay there's this faraway country that existed thousands of years ago and we're going to talk about that it's an educational device you're talking about your your students and you're making something where you can make your philosophy right Um, the reason Athens was a democracy but it's not a liberal democracy there's no freedom of speech in Athens if you upset people you get ostracised or you get sentenced to death I mean that's what happened to Plato no he was sentenced to death 
so therefore you need to be like no no we're not talking about Athens we're not criticizing Athens we're criticizing this society that existed 12,000 years ago on an island on the other side of the world yeah it's a lot like uh, William Shakespeare <clears throat> a lot of his plays are set in Italy right like Romeo and Juliet two gentlemen Verona so on and so forth because no 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 I'm not criticizing England I don't need to go to the tower I don't need to go on the rack I don't need to be tortured yeah. I'm criticizing Italy and it's okay. the same thing yeah, making yeah, distance yeah, yeah. So by setting it on an island that's under the sea that disappeared 12,000 years ago, you can't do more to distance yourself from the, the subject. And like, okay, you know, we're just philosophizing. It's not real. And we're not criticizing Athens. Athens is perfect, of course. Please don't kill me. So that's what I think Atlantis is and why it's set in this way. You've thought about this because that's a very well-rounded and unarguable answer, to be honest. That, you've thought about this, haven't you? <laughs> We, you know, we after we talked about the ancient apocalypse, obviously the series on Netflix, which is obviously huge, which is fucking great. I won't have a bad word said about it, or come over there and smash mm-hmm. your teeth in. <laughs> you know, the thing is, you have to think about it. Okay, so you have to think about it properly. Like, okay, so what does the source material actually say, mm. and what makes sense for the source material? I mean, the thing of what I think when you take the Atlantis story literally it's like you imagine an archaeologist 200 years from now discovers some ancient film and he puts he gets a special computer he puts the film on and it says a long time ago in a galaxy far away and it's oh wow cool I found a history documentary yeah that's what if you're taking Atlantis literally that's what you're doing I think in my head it's a mystery that I want to be true like there's for me there's no way you can definitively say that Atlantis was a place in my head but there's a few theories out there um who's the guy who's my main man Graham Cock Graham Cock that's him he does obviously he did the Apocalypse series I thought it super entertaining I absolutely love it but there's a difference between taking it as factual evidence and taking it as this is a theory that could potentially be true. He he words the argument very well. Like I know we've had discussions about sometimes he probably pers- purposely admits like certain things to make his argument better, which I agree with. But it the idea of like a little floating city in the middle of the ocean is obviously for completely far-fetched and it makes no fucking sense but I feel like they're probably they're, them stories might like there's probably bits of the stories that have come from somewhere like deep down inside me, I probably don't think Atlantis was a place personally mm. I don't really think it was a place I like the idea of it and I like the idea of anything that ever comes up to say like oh well that links the Atlantis story so maybe that little snippet was true but I think typically it's too far fetched to have a, a floating island well it's not it's like an island made up of what do they say it's like concentric, concentric circles, rings yeah, yeah rings and that and it's like that there's that that, that uh, phenomenon in Africa what's it called Eye like of the, the Sahara of, uh, West, yeah the west of Africa the Eye of Sahara which if you hear the the story and then see that, you know, this is like there's gotta there's gotta be a link between yeah. the Isles of Hara and Atlantis, but 
But because you're priming be, yourself to yeah, believe there's it. There's not going to be a big technologically advanced settlement that's got these like well-designed concentric rings of sea. Just seems, based on what we know, obviously we've done how many episodes now on this time period? Seven. To, eight. to think that before that, which they claim, uh, uh, Hancock claims that this was Ice Age. Bear in mm. mind, he claims that Atlantis was an Ice Age or previous to Ice Age. I just struggle to believe that they had, considering they're doing stupid shit like burning babies and <laughs> the, all the mad stuff that these people do. You're like, well, how could you have put together that city? Like, yeah. It makes no sense, does it? This is the other thing of the scale. Like, from us to the, you know, the Assyrians is what, 3,000, no, sorry, 2,500 years. So, Hancock's thing would be another 10,000 years. So 10,000 years plus 3,000 years before electronics. You can't do a lot of that. Yeah. Electronics, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think with the Atlanta story, in terms of as a piece of literature, there definitely is historical things that have an impact. 15 years before it was written down, a settlement in Greece was destroyed by a tsunami and like just wiped off the map. That probably has some influence I've talked to you before that more like a, a more tenuous link is the Pharaoh eruption so the modern island of Santorini which is like this kind yeah, of yeah. Greek Santorini's island nice one, isn't it? it's probably pretty one where people have the weddings this is the remains of a bigger island called Pharaoh which exploded in a massive massive volcanic uh, eruption it's probably unlikely but I think it's not unreasonable to say maybe there's a cultural and folk memory of that Going yeah, into Atlantis. That makes sense. That just makes but it's still sense. a thousand have years. Of, have time. you heard of the Piraeus map? Have you heard of that? The Piraeus map. Uh, oh, oh, um. So this is the evidence Brian Hancock uses for this one of the pieces. Like to be fair, he puts he puts across many pieces of what he picks as evidence, but the Piraeus map is a specific one, which is a map dr- drawn up by Piraeus, which is a Ottoman Turkish admiral, yeah, Tur- Turkish admiral explorer from like I want to say. 1500s, maybe 14. Yeah, I think 1400s. Like yeah, I think yep. it was like, in fact, yeah, it was 1520 or something like that. I think it was. And he drew up this map, and there's an area on the map that basically is unexplained, and they, Brian Hancock's linking that to Atlantis. It's not unexplained. I'm swear, if we had Brian Hancock on it, it'd, it'd give you Graham other reasons. Hancock. But Graham Hancock, sorry. Um, but that's the. If you actually look at the map. Like, without any preconcessions to yeah. what things might be. You look at the map and you're like, yeah, it's just a map of the world. Yeah. But like, some bits of... I know, I know the map in question. Some bits are very detailed, because obviously it's like European trade routes. Other bits... Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, I think the, the Atlantis thing is no different to ancient aliens. If you go in there to a hieroglyphics and you're looking to find helicopters you'll find helicopters yeah you, you always find what you want to find don't yeah, you? Yeah. That, that, that's the, that's always the tough bit but archaeologists must suffer from this as well like when they're going looking for yeah, something for sure. and they find something they're going to say this is something rather than what it actually is I think they actually have the opposite problem in that because they have to write you know be peer reviewed and assessed they are super cautious of saying anything. So they're like proper cage. I can't remember what it was now, but I remember it was a major discovery and the initial paper was like, um, yeah, this possibly maybe could be this. 
and then eventually someone that was like not an academic stone was like yes this is that yeah okay because they're so scared of being ridiculed by the academy that it's like okay you have to be, if you're going to make a big claim you have to be so certain of what you're saying but do you not think that applies into the fact of what Hancock says about there I, being a archaeology archaeologist archaeological elite that sort of dictates how things are you, you know he talks this about is, this quite a lot he does he talks I like sort a, of feel like that probably is a thing I'm gonna yeah I'm, I've thought about this one as well um so I think where this comes from is most people do not study history, right? So it's take your sister. Exactly, only only you know. <laughs> the worst kind of people study history. Sorry, Russ, carry on. What were you saying about no. history studies? <laughs> but to give you as an example, so last time you studied history in an academic context, where you would have been thirteen because you didn't do it at GCSE. Didn't do it at GCSE, so yeah, I would have been a little child. And when you're at school. You go into the classroom, the history teacher says, the Romans did this, right? And that's kind of, I think, for the majority of people, because they don't study history beyond school, that's their, um, their, their, their experience of studying history is, go to the classroom, teacher says this. At university level and beyond, it's more like you're supposed to make an argument and come up with something new. Yeah, okay. So, I'm sure Hancock is fully aware of that, but he also knows the majority of his readers, their experiences of history teacher telling them X, Y, Z. And then occasionally or sometimes you'll find out Y, X, Z. And that makes you think, well, maybe this history teacher didn't know everything. And because you don't have the context that history is like, you know, a constant back and forth discussion. You know, we keep referencing just two sources, Eric Klein and Mark Van der And we keep talking about how they disagree with each other. That's not how history is taught at school. You don't hear about dis- yeah, dispute and disagreement. Yeah. So that's why I think Hancock can create that conspiracy of a big history trying to suppress the truth. Whereas in reality, if you discovered something amazing like a lost civilization, of course you would write that, you would publish that, you would spend 10 years getting the pictures and the graphics and the evidence, and then you would deliver this thing and be like, I've just changed the world, and you would be the biggest name in archaeology. Yeah. Like, why would you not do that? And honestly, like, I'm going to be careful because I don't want to be taken for to court for libel by Graham Hancock. But Graham Hancock has made far, far more money out of his books than any archaeologist or historian ever has. Because it's like, interesting, isn't it? Because it's different. Yeah. That's probably what it is. It's the thing of, like, people like the idea of, like, a secret history, but they want to hear what the actual secret history was. Oh, this tribe of goat herders was slightly different to this one in mm. ways that are cool and interesting. People want there to be a mystery. And it's, it's, it's ancient aliens with slightly more academic skin. That's all it is. Still understanding that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's always nice that there's a mystery out there. You know, there are lost civilizations. You know, I think that's why you get wound up by it, though. Because I, th- I, I always think that you think people take it as that's facts. Which a lot of people do, to be fair. They do, don't yeah. they? Like, I don't think... Me- most people see it for entertainment as interesting. Like most people are like read see it and then go, This must be fact. I think it's a thing that like It makes a good argument, but he uses You have to treat it as wacky though. Like everyone treated ancient aliens as wacky when that was on TV. Everyone knew it was wacky. It was really exciting though. But yeah, but yeah. everyone knew it was tongue in cheek and like the duration was tongue in cheek and stuff and everyone understood this. You put it this way, like, serious history is kind of disappearing from the cultural mainstream. When we were kids growing up, 
you know, every Saturday night, Time Team was on TV, and there's a bunch of archaeologists digging a muddy hole in Britain, finding that mud slightly different because it's a post hole. And everyone had that basic exposure to history. People don't have that exposure now. Yeah, that's a good point, though. Yeah, like, the cultural exposure's gone. Yeah. Yeah, you know, people get the history from TV series, like from you know Netflix series and films and stuff, and that's it. And that Ancient Apocalypse was the biggest Netflix history series well was the most watched history series in years yeah you know if you came on with an actual documentary of that would it get the exposure probably not not as exciting is it exactly but yeah that's my take on the Atlantis conspiracism fair play mate <laughs> sometimes it worries me that you're a bit too smart for me Honestly, man, like, because I run the the Twitter and the social media, and I like now my feed is full of like actual academics, and I'm like, look at them, I'm like, oh my and god, you feel I'm so a lot under pressure. Yeah, I'm so, stu- <laughs> I'm, like, I'm so yeah. stupid. <laughs> that's the that's how it should be, though. You know, what I mean, it's a bit humbling, and it sometimes, <laughs> but that's good, man. It's nice that we've got them kind of people as well, because it's good to learn off a minute. Yeah, but that was we're on eighty minutes, man. So we probably should wrap this up. Jesus Christ okay yeah, so that's yeah. the longest ever episode um, yeah. alright so thank you so much for listening next week then we're going to start into the collapse of the late Bronze Age how this all came to an end shit's about to get real I think isn't it? exactly thank you so much for listening as always if you have any feedback questions want to shout at us you can do so at wearemakersofhistory on gmail.com via email or at at makersofhistory on the twitter uh, would love to hear from you and until next time ta-ta S- sound goes see you later bye 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 <laughs>